Hey, good morning. Great to see you today. If you have known me for a while, you know that I was born on a naval base, that both my parents were in the Navy. That's where they met. My dad came from Virginia, my mom came from Columbus, and that's where they connected, was in the Navy. Um, I was born in Norfolk, Virginia, or at the Naval Hospital that, I think I'm technically Portsmouth, Virginia. It's the hospital that serves the Eastern Naval Command in Norfolk. At the time I was born, my parents were in a place where they hadn't really DTR'd. They hadn't really defined their relationship. They hadn't decided if this was going to end up in, in marriage or, or what it looked like in the future. And that's a fairly common thing for young people uh, that are trying to figure out what things are going to look like. And so when my mom gave birth, she discharged from the Navy and she moved back to Columbus, back home with her parents so that they could help her raise me. And, and she gave my dad a decision and said, look, I'm going to go home and raise this little boy and you can come with me. Would love to have you there. But ultimately we have to, you have to decide and we have to decide what this relationship is going to look like. We have to define who we are intending to be. And so six months later, my dad or so ish, <laughs> I'm a little foggy on all the details cause I was a little young, right? But <laughs> my dad chooses to move north, to come to Columbus, to leave behind the South where he'd grown up and everything he'd known um, and his family and to move north to Columbus. My mom and dad got married and have been married for over 50 years at this point. Uh, but what's key to this story for me and where we're, I'm trying to go with this is that when I was born, because they had not defined the relationship, I was actually born into this world, not as Robert Starnes. I was born into this world as Robert Harrison. That's the name that was put on the, my birth certificate. It's my mom's maiden name. But when my dad came north and when my parents got married, my dad made a choice. And this is important. And this is, this is impactful to me. Uh, my dad chose to adopt me. Uh, he chose to say, I want to make sure that the world knows you are my son that you carry my name. And that means an incredible amount to me. You know, we could have gone through life with me being Robert Harrison and him being Jack Starnes and, and he still would have been every bit my dad, right? But for him and them together to make that choice that this mattered, that this was important, that I carried his name, says a lot about my dad's character. It says a lot about his love for me. And, and my parents didn't tell me this until I was a little older, which is probably good because, you know, if my little brother found out I was technically adopted, um, I'm sure he would have used that to poke me about every 15 seconds because, well, that's what little brothers do. But at this point in my life, I am grateful for it. I'm grateful to have that weird quirk in my story um, and in my parents' story because it reminds me just how much my parents love me. And I don't think I can overstate that. Adoption, um, although my story is different than most adoption stories, right? Adoptions are such a powerful testament to someone's love for someone, to take on responsibility for someone's life, to give them their name, 
and say, you are mine. That means a great deal. As we continue our study in Galatians, um, we're going to get into adoption and Jesus adopting us into his family. And before we do that, I want to remember last week we were talking about the law and the, the value that the people of God in Galatia were putting on the law. They were being convinced by a group of people. We've heard this term a thousand times in the last few weeks called Judaizers who were trying to convince them they had to be Jewish before they could be Christian. It's busted. It's wrong. And Paul is telling them that. And last week we kind of said, look, the law has a purpose, right? Paul was like, it's a kind of guidepost. It's a guidepost that directs you towards Jesus. It helps you take a look at things and, and consider your life and ask, am I moving towards God the way he would want me to move? But it's not a measuring stick. It's not a way of, of assigning yourself a grade, a passing or failing grade in the following of God. And it certainly isn't a way to measure ourselves against others, which is really what the Galatians were doing. They were using it as a weapon against one another, saying, I'm holier than you because I follow all of these rules and you don't. And Paul stands in the gap there and says, that's ridiculous. This week, he reminds them, he moves into this discussion of adoption, reminding them that they are all actually family. Because in choosing to follow Jesus, Jesus has in turn said, I'm choosing to give you and I my family name. I'm choosing to adopt you as my sons and daughters. And that is a powerful statement about the character of God and the love of God. So if you would, turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to finish up Galatians 3, 27 through 29, and then we're going to jump over to chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. So we're going to cross that sacred chapter line, which, by the way, wasn't in the original text. It was added later, so I wouldn't call it sacred. But we're going to look at what it means to truly be adopted into the family of God and honestly, how we benefit from it and maybe how we sometimes don't recognize just how big a deal it really is. So if you would, Galatians chapter 3 verses 27 through 29 is where we're going to start. And I'm going to read out of the CSB this week. So here we go. This is what it says. It says, For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed according to the promise. He begins this section by saying you are clothed in Christ. You know, clothing is that, that stuff that we take everywhere. Well, at least I hope we do. I mean, unless you're in the bathtub, I really feel like you should be clothed, right? That's <laughs> just life in general. So you don't go out in public without clothes. And if you do, people question you. You probably should. Clothing is, is a lot of what people see when they look at us. Our, our choices in clothing say much to the world around us about who we are, about what we value and what our favorite colors and tastes are. Um, it says some things about our nationality, our social class, or our gender, um, or the part of the country we are from. Um, people in the South dress differently than people in the North sometimes. People who are working day to every day with their hands and are covered in mud and grease and whatever it is they are doing dress differently to go to work than I do at this point. I dress differently than I used to when I was in a different line of work. It says something about who we are and it is what people see. And the truth is we make 
judgments sometimes, or at least observations based on what people wear of who they are, because it is part of our identity. I remember several years ago, when Josh, all of my kids were little, but we were out trick-or-treating and Josh decided he wanted to take on the identity of a dinosaur. He wanted to be a T-Rex. And so he had this T-Rex costume that I think at least two of our kids have worn, maybe three. <laughs> We've had it a long time, but uh, he wanted to be a T-Rex and, and he was out trick-or-treating and he was starting to get tired and had been scared to death by a guy who was uh, sitting on his front porch pretending to be a statue. And when the kids walked up, he would jump, scared the daylights out of him. He was ready to go home after that. Well, who wouldn't be? But I remember him saying to Heather, sitting down, he sits down on the ground. He's like, I'm done. I'm done. I'm tired. I want to go home. And you know, we're being parents going, we're not done yet. We got just a few more houses. It'll be okay. We're almost back. And he looks at his mom and he goes, mom, you're making me extinct because dinosaurs are, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, he had truly looked like a dinosaur, was trying to roar and act like a dinosaur, and now he'd put himself in the position of feeling like a dinosaur. This must be how it ended. This must be how they all went extinct. Their parents were making them walk when they didn't want to anymore. But he had taken on, in many ways, that identity. To be clothed with Jesus is to find our identity in Jesus over and above everything else. It, it's to imitate him in our words and our actions and our priorities because, frankly, we are representing him in the world. And when we don't imitate him, people can begin to think that Jesus is extinct. And that's something we know to not be true. Being clothed with Christ is also something about the intimacy of our relationship with him, right? Our clothes go everywhere with us. Uh, they are used for shelter. The temperature has dropped here recently, and so now I'm wearing a sweater today, right? It's down in the 50s now. Okay, it's a good excuse for me. I love sweaters and sweater vests. Yeah, I'm a nerd, but hey, fall's my favorite season for that reason. But our clothes are also are really closer to us. They are in contact with us more than any other possession we have. And most importantly for followers of Christ, being clothed with Christ means Jesus covers our sin. He covers our shame so that when God looks at us, he only sees his perfect son. Now, I don't know about you, but those are clothes, that's clothing I need to, I need to have on because I am anything but perfect. He then goes on in, this, in the next verse, in verse 28, to talk about really what are divisive topics for the people of God, right? When he says there is no Jew or Greek, he's talking about the prejudice that exists between the Jews and the Greeks and how really, if they are all heirs according to the promise, right, which we'll get into in a second, if they are all part of God's family and they have all been clothed with Jesus, those, there's no room for those kinds of dividing lines based on nationality or traditions or, or habits or expectations or any of those things. It's really about, are we all finding our identity in Jesus? Because at the end of the day, none of those other things really should matter as much, if at all. He then walks into this divisions that occur between classes, and especially in the, in the New Testament. If you look at the book of Corinthians, 
It is absolutely an argument between two classes of people, between the rich and the poor, and how the rich are not treating the poor as true brothers and sisters in Christ by, well, waiting on them in order to start communion and eating, sharing a meal together, praying together, worshiping together. They're not letting them finish their work first. They're saying, we'll get started and you can have whatever's left over. You're creating this, this privilege, right? This distinction of privilege that Paul is saying here also is irrelevant. It shouldn't exist. We are all family. We are all one. We are all equal, right? He also talks about gender, which may have been, uh, according to Timothy Keller, theologian says, perhaps the strongest barrier of Paul's day, right? where women were truly valued as inferior to men. They weren't actually allowed to be the heirs of an estate. The estate was to go to the firstborn son, and if the son, firstborn son couldn't take it, another son, and if you didn't have any sons, you would bypass a woman and give it to a nephew or a brother or an uncle, but it would not go to women. They weren't allowed to be heirs according to the promise. They weren't allowed to inherit it. Unfortunately, we still deal with some of that today where we see each other as inherently inferior to one another based on our gender, which is utterly ridiculous in Paul's mind and frankly in God's. But one, one thing he doesn't do is eliminate distinctions, right? He doesn't say group Jews and Greeks have to be absolutely identical in everything. He doesn't set aside their cultural background. He doesn't set aside their traditions. He doesn't set aside um, their expressions or even the language they're choosing to use. There are differences. And those distinctions can remain. And in fact, I would argue, frankly, should remain. God is a God of diversity. I mean, look around at the world, pick any species on the planet and look at the shapes, the differences in shapes, sizes, colors, right? Heights, lengths. It's amazing the diversity that God has created in this world. You can look at plants, animals. You can look at the diversity of climates from freezing cold to blazing heat, from mountains to oceans to plains. It's, God is clearly a God who loves variety and loves diversity, and it has value to him. And I think part of the key here that the Galatians are struggling with is seeing that diversity as valuable, as God sees it as valuable, rather than seeing it as an opportunity to divide. And then he gets into this discussion about heirs according to the promise. This is a promise made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, where he says, look, if you will follow me, I will make your descendants number among the stars or more than the stars. And he reiterates it in Genesis 15. He tells them that it'll be like grains of sand on a beach. And it's, it's a promise that he reiterates again with David. And now he is saying is very, very clear, has been fulfilled, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But in chapter 4, he reminds us that there's more than just a name attached. There's an inheritance that comes to someone who is an heir when they come of age. And it's that coming of age that Paul really tries to dig into in the verses that follow. So chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 is where we're going to start. It says, Now I say that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, 
though he's the owner of everything. Instead, he is under guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, when we were we were in slavery under the elements of the world. It's a slave who owns everything, but doesn't realize it yet because he hasn't come of age. I think Paul talks about this really on, on a couple of levels here is what he's trying to dig into. First, he's talking about humanity as a whole. When we were children, when we did not yet know the Lord, we were children without a name. Yes, we are God's kids, but he hadn't, we had not yet taken on his name. We are children. We were in slavery under the elements of the world. It's this idea that, that before Jesus, we are all spiritual slaves in so many ways because we're too busy trying to stick to or hold up to or lift ourselves up to some kind of earthly standard, right? Am I good enough? Am I a good enough father? Am I a good enough worker? Am I, am I strong enough to carry, um, literally carry a weight? Or am I strong enough to get my, my family through a difficult time? Or sometimes we're slave to people's opinions. Do people like me when they see me and see what I'm wearing? Do they like my clothes? Do they like what it says about me? Do they like me? We're a slave to those things. And, and the truth is, it's fraught with fear and anxiety because the requirements, the standards are ever-changing, right? And they're completely subjective. Before Jesus, we were spiritual slaves to the darkness. We're unable to see the path ahead, and we're kind of wandering around without purpose or true meaning. Uh, when I was a kid, I wandered away from my mom at a Kmart once. And I think every kid has done that. I remember specifically spending literally 45 minutes trying to find Josh at a Kohl's one time and locking down the doors and nobody, we were guarding exits. It was crazy. But uh, I wandered off from my mom at a Kmart because I wasn't paying attention to what she was doing. And when I realized I was separated from her, I had wandered away. I panicked. I absolutely panicked. I ran up to the front desk and I made them page my mom. And she was, she was mortified that I would have her name paged. Uh, but, but the truth is, I was wandering around doing whatever I wanted to do. And when I realized I was not doing what she wanted or was no longer next to her, I panicked. Before Jesus, without Jesus, many of us are people who are wandering around in the world, nowhere near our parent, nowhere near the one who is whose name has called he whose name we are intended to have, right? We're not near that family, we're not that heir. We're wandering around trying to figure out the meaning of life. It is no wonder so many are angry and hurting in this world because children are not meant to walk around Kmart by themselves, and they're certainly not meant to walk around and wander around the world by themselves. But I think he's also addressing here God's people. He says in verse 2, they were under guardians and trustees. You know, Moses at Mount Sinai, um, God gave a covenant over to his people that he renewed, again, this promise of Abraham and set down a series of commandments and laws. And, and these were really the guardians and the trustees, the things that were intended to keep us safe and moving towards God and moving towards holiness. Those guideposts we were just talking about, that's the law that were pointing us toward Jesus Christ. But they, but they were insufficient. They were not the true 
coming of age. You can't come of age. In fact, Hebrews 10, 10 1 says it this way, since says, since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come, and it's not really itself those things. So the law is pointing us towards Jesus, but it's not the actual arrival of Jesus. It says it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices continually offered year after year. It is the coming of Jesus that fulfills that. But I think even as Christians, we can still struggle with this slavery concept of being a slave to the elements of the world because we continue to live life daily as though nothing has changed. We don't change our standards sometimes when we become followers of Jesus. He doesn't become the thing by which we uh, measure everything else we choose to do and the actions we take and the decisions we make and the words we use and, and even what our sense of priority is, right? What, what is, how do we rank our priorities in life? We sometimes, even as followers of Christ, find ourselves still being children wandering around trying to chase the dreams of the remainder of the world. And the truth is, we weren't made for that. We were made to walk with him. Let's continue in verses four through seven. It says, when the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so under those guideposts, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God spent the, sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. Jesus' arrival and our choice to be baptized into Jesus and to follow Jesus is what allows us to come of age, to receive that inheritance that God so desperately wants us to have anyways. He says the, the time came to completion. That's supposed to be a, a, an allusion to both history, right? It was the right time. The limits of the law were reached and it was time to see them fulfilled and to see Jesus come into this world and say, this is how this is all going to work out. I'm going to adopt you. I'm going to bring you into my family. The Lord is only going to see me when he looks at you and it's going to be all good. You are my son. Just as God says to Jesus in the book of Mark as he's coming up out of the water, some of the other disciples, some of the other gospels say that as a dove descended upon him, he had pronounced it to the to the entirety of those watching, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And I'm sure that is exactly what they heard. But Jesus heard a very personal connection in, in the book of Mark. It says, you are my son, with you I am well pleased. And that is the the kind of announcement that the arrival of Jesus should make for all of those who come to know him. It's really this time of completion also talks about our limits, right? We've, our limits have been reached. We can only carry ourselves so far. We are easily sidetracked. We are lost at Kmart pretty easily in this world, right? We are ready, though, if we follow Jesus, to be released from that slavery. And it says, God sent his son. This is the only way we, we can come of age, is to take on the identity of Jesus, to let him call us his children, and to change accordingly, to, to imitate him to the best of our ability, 
because our capacity is limited. But Jesus honors effort. I really believe that with all my heart. He honors effort. He's the perfection. We're never going to be this side of heaven and probably not at all. But, but when we begin to come of age and the more we grow in our faith in Jesus, the more we imitate him in our decisions and our actions and our priorities, the more we lay down trying to meet the standards of the world to try to have the biggest house or the coolest car or be the best looking or any of those things and just say, look, my standard is Jesus. I'm trying to please him. I'm not trying to please everybody else. We can begin to see this inheritance that he has promised beginning to come to life. We can truly move into being heirs. He chooses just to remind us also in this text that they were born of a woman under the law before Jesus. Even Mary was still subject to the law. But Jesus has paid the price and freed us from that law. I mean, how incredibly wonderful is that? He has received, we have received adoptions as his sons. That means technically it's kind of this, it's really two words. You have received the sonship, right? This, this, this bestowed gift upon you of the sonship of, of God. It's a, actually a Greco-Roman legal term, a, a childless, wealthy man when could put could adopt his servant someone who was born into life had no birthright no station in life and a wealthy man in greco-roman times could choose to adopt his servant even if that servant was an adult he could choose to adopt him and make him his heir he could change his entire social status in the blink of an eye and that's the term that god's trying to get to here through paul is to say look he has changed your status right you have been adopted into his family. You're not wandering around. You're not trying to figure out who you are. You are mine and I love you and I am claiming you as mine and I want the world to know that you are mine. This is what Jesus has done for us. He has recreated a relationship where frankly it was strained or maybe even there was none. When he says, they was crying out, Father, that crying, that word krasdon means it's a passionate, deep, loud cry. And Abba is a very informal, familial word, right? It's, it's not Father, it's closer to Papa or, or Dad or Daddy. It's, it's this familial relationship where none existed before, one that is marked by both love for and dependence on the Lord. It creates a new legal standing in the kingdom of God. We've gone from slave to ourselves and the world and to freedom in Christ. And Paul will go on in Galatians 5 verse 1 and, and remind the Galatians and us that that's something we should avoid returning to even as the world pulls us back. He says in Galatians 5 1, he says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Do not go back to what once was because you have been given a new status in the kingdom of God. You have been made a son and a daughter. You have been made an heir. And I want to stop and say that real quick. To read this as only sons is to miss the point, okay? God clearly wants to make it clear through Paul's writings. Think back to Galatians 3 when he said, there is no male or female. As he's writing this, he's saying, you are children of God. You are my sons and daughters. You are my 
family. And he has given them an opportunity to have a new life of privilege that they never would have had before, stemming not from some earthly criteria, but from the status of our Father in heaven, where our sins no longer earn us death and condemnation, but the righteousness of God bestows eternal life. If you have not yet taken on the name of God, if you have not chosen to be baptized, I keep knocking things around, I'm getting a little fired up. If you have not chosen to take on the name of God as his son, as his daughter, to take on his inheritance, to see yourself come of age and come to life, to grow in him, to imitate him, and to recognize this is how it was always supposed to be, I encourage you to do that today. That can start right now. You can choose to say, Lord, I am yours. I want to be your son or daughter. I want to be your child. I want to be called by your name. I want, I want people when they see me to see you. I want me when, I'm, when I have to explain myself to you in heaven and we will all give an account of that. I want you to see Jesus. I want you to see your son, your perfect son, and to recognize that we are all family because we are your children. You can do that today by simply saying, Lord, I want you to be my savior. I want you to be my father. I want to be part of your family. I'm turning my back on all of these other things. I'm repenting. That's what all that means is turning your back on all these other things I've sought or chased after to try to define me because I know where I'm supposed to be. Please take me. And he will. If you've already claimed yourself as a son or daughter of the Lord and have forgotten, go back to him and remind him Well, remind yourself, I should say. He knows already. Remind yourself that you are his. And he will gladly, cheerfully, excitedly welcome you back into his family. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and he be gracious to you. May he grant you favor and may he give you peace. God bless.